to the video, I mean the giggling and the laughter of our children going, and I just want to commend you parents who are helping your kids learn scriptures, at the, even, even at Chloe's age. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certain that absent the shyness and the crowd, there's, there has been some time placing the word of God down into that little soul, and I commend you parents for doing that way to go. So today's the, um, the fourth, so out of Proverbs uh, chapter 4, I picked verse 23, keep and guard your heart with all vigilance, and above all that, your gu- you guard, you guard, for out of it flow the springs of life. Goodman. Yeah, so let's pray over the word of God today. Lord, as we get into your word, this is the place, Lord, where, um, where we can go and know that we stand on firm ground. Your word. Lord, speak to us through your word. And I pray, Lord, that through this imperfect vessel, Lord, what would be shared would somehow bring light. And for the things, Lord, that somehow would not be you, just let it fall away like chaff, but let the rest find fertile ground. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to say, before we get started today in our text, I just want to remind you about Romans 8.1 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the reason I say that is because we're going to talk a little bit about family. Okay, we're going to talk, and we're going to examine one of the most failed families in all of Scripture. And as I read through the failures in this family, I can see my failures in there, in this story. I'll bet you'll be able to, too. And I don't want you to feel condemned. And here's, here's a, just a mini lesson about condemnation. It's not from the Lord. If the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to you, you will be convicted, perhaps, and encouraged to change and to grow. But condemnation comes from a different place, comes from hell. Ignore condemnation. It's, it's not, it, scripture tells us that. So I want to start with a riddle today. There was a perfect man who had a perfect wa- woman. And after a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding, and they started living their perfect life. And uh, in one snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, they were uh, driving alone on a winding road, and they came along, and there was, they saw someone standing along the roadside. And along the roadside, the guys, they got closer, they realized it was Santa Claus. Something had happened, and he had lost his ride, and so they stopped to help him, fig- figuring they didn't want all these children to miss out on Christmas Eve. So they picked up Santa Claus and his toys, and they went their merry way. And, and as they were going along, um, unfortunately, the, the conditions got worse and worse and worse, and they had a terrible accident. And only one of them survived. The riddle is, who survived? No. The survivor was the perfect woman because she's the only one that ever existed in the first place. Everybody knows there's no Santa Claus and there's no perfect man. We all knew that. Now, I've noticed a majority of women are laughing here, but there is a counter-argument, just a point to be made, that since there was no perfect man, obviously it was the woman who was driving, which is why there was an accident. So if anybody could throw me a rope as I dig myself down into holes up here, I might need one. Um, So there's no such thing as a perfect man. There's no such thing as a perfect woman, except right there. And um, (laughs) there's no such thing as a perfect family. Every single family has some misfiring somewhere along the way. Every family does. And um, we're going to look today at one of the premier Old Testament families in the Word of God, that of King David, who um, God described him as a man after my own. God God loved David like crazy, and God knew all of these failures, both before, after, and during, while that's resided in in his heart. And even the family of King David was terribly strained. And this is a family of a driven man. He's he's, he's a, a man with great power. He was the king. But he was a passive parent. And any time you put together in the same mixing bowl power and passivity, you're headed for trouble. You're just headed for trouble. You know, he's, he's, he's got all this. You just mix together all great responsibility, which is the role of a parent. You mix that together with passivity, and the results will be disastrous. And this is one fractured family. And you, you, know, you probably know that as the family goes, so goes the culture, right? You've probably heard that saying because, and the, the reason that that's true is because the basic unit of culture is the family. 
and not the individual. If you have a vibrant, healthy, thriving family, you're going to have healthy, vibrant, thriving culture. But if you have fractured families, if you have, you know, it, it doesn't matter so much as to their social status or their financial status, but if you have fractured families, you're going to have a fractured culture, a fractured society. And there are a lot of really powerful forces present today that are working against families. You know, the media is a, is a force. The fashion industry puts tremendous pressure on families. Lyrics to certain music puts... Uh, a, a lot of these things are not very pro-family. You can see it very easily if you just look a little bit. And, um, and these are forces that fight against the biblical model of a healthy family. But there's another force at work that... I think somehow at times violates the family. And this one, you're going to be surprised to hear, or maybe not quite ready to hear this. And that other force that sometimes violates families is parents. Parents can be one of the, one of the forces that, that makes it hard. And um, there's a message that's floating around in our culture. It's ever-present. And, and it basically, these forces, you know, media and, and um, fashion and and uh, lyrics sometimes, they're, they're constantly showering our culture with messages and values. If you have children, you know, the, the, the cultural message is that if you have children, your happiness will go down and your frustration will go up. That's a generic message that's present in our culture. If you, know, if you, if you have a baby, it's going to change the shape of your body and it's going to take a lot of your time and your interests are going to have to go backseat. That's the message of our culture. In fact, studies have told us, and, and by the way, I'm going to mention several studies off, you know, as, as I go through this, and I do that from time to time. Studies are just generalities. They're not true of every individual. So don't take this personally, but these are statistics, and they tell us about trends in culture. Okay, st- studies tell us that of American women, um, American women that they choose not to procreate, that percentage of women is growing. In 1976, it was just a little bit over a third, and in, by, ni- by 2010, it had gotten to 47%, just under a half of American women just, just choose not to procreate. They don't even know that they want to have children because culture sees having children as an inconvenience. And one of the biggest problems in our culture, and the problem is really getting worse, is the problem of homeless children. It's a terrible problem. Worldwide, it's hard to pin the number down, but worldwide estimates range from between 70 to 100 million children are homeless in the whole world. And they're, they're, they're on the street or they're abandoned. Homelessness of children, let's say under 18, in the United States, the numbers range between 1.6 and 2 million. If you took those kids and stuck them all into one city, it would be the sixth largest city in our country. You know, it's just a scary thing. And you and I cannot take in two million kids. <laughs> we just don't have that many bedrooms. I mean, so we can't. But the question still, that doesn't relieve us of asking the question and, and, and moving forward. How do we secure the future generations? How do we take care of and plan for families? How do we provide for security is one of them. One answer, I'm going to give it to you in two words. Parental involvement. If you're a school teacher, if you're particularly if you're a public school teacher, you're going, yeah, 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 preach, keep going. Parental involvement. And as we start walking into the story that we see in the text here, we're going to see terrible relational chaos going in in the family of King David. So let's get some context about King David's family. Um, he had a massive family. This is a snapshot. It doesn't include the whole family tree. And you can see kind of a blurry black mess about in the middle on the right. That's his concubines. Anyway, so, so here's, some, here's, here's some, some statistics about King David. I just want to let you know who this family is that we're talking about. He's got eight wives and at least ten concubines. Concubines are not his wife. He's apparently not committed to them, but he has relations with them. There's at least ten of them. He has produced... Now, these are the ones that I could find by, by going through Scripture, okay? He's produced at least 19 sons who are named in Scripture and two more who are not named and one daughter whose name is Tamar who's listed. There are no other daughters that I could find in Scripture. So there's 20... Is that 20, 19, 20, 20, uh, 20 22, 23? There's that many named, and it, it's... Okay, 
how many families would have 19 boys and no girls? Probably not too many. So there's probably other girls. We just don't know. I think it's reasonable to assume he's got 30 kids, maybe 40. If half his kids were girls, he would have 40 children. This man is a one-man population explosion, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> I don't know what's, but there's a whole lot of chaos brewing. I wonder if he can even remember their names, okay? I don't know. Anyway, so, and I know you're looking at this story and you think, okay, lots of wives, concubines. That was really common in history. You could say, well, I know in history that was very, very common. To, my, to which I would say, yes, it was true. It doesn't make it right, and it wasn't God's will. Oh, Terry, how do you know it wasn't God's will? Here, I'll give you a couple examples. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father, and the two shall be joined. The man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. It's a singular word. And the two shall become one. By the way, we're going to come back to that phrase. Joined together, cleaved. Uh, King James Version, we're going to talk about what that actually means. Here's another one, even more specific to this example. Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, Neither shall the king multiply wives to himself lest his heart turn away. There's one worth studying. What's he turning away from? The wives, maybe. I don't think so. I think it means he turns away from God, and that's a bigger issue. And you'll find that these prohibitions that God gave were ignored not just by David, but by his son Solomon and a lot of others. Doesn't make it right. Why would they disregard this? I couldn't get a good, clear answer. There are a lot of commentaries about it, but the most common answer was they believed that that particular law was no longer relevant for their time. It had become obsolete. The 2018 translation of that is, well, it's the Old Testament. It really isn't relevant anymore for me. I've got my own truth. That's probably why they had multiple wives, along with the obvious selfish and self-destructive reasons. Anyway, so David ignores God's rule, and he's now the ruler over not just a nation, but he's a ruler over a family chaos. And... Um, we're going to now read, and our text is going to be Second Samuel. And I just want to say to you, um, it's, it's possible to read this and just look at it from a historical perspective, which it is. But I want you to look at this through the lens of your family. If this was your family, how would you feel? What would you do? Um, and you can get just as worked up as I am about this. Okay, so here we go. Second Samuel 13, starting in verse 1. After this... David, or excuse me, after this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Okay, just to keep this straight, these are all children of David. Absalom and Tamar are sisters, and Amnon is a half-brother. So, yeah, he's a half-brother, and he, she, he has a different mom. Because these are all siblings of each other, all right? These are all children of, of David. Verse 2, Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. So you see what's going on here. He's attracted to her, and he wants her. Now, Amnon, he's going he's to come up with a plot. He's going to get her alone, and he's, he's going to do what you think he's going to do. Um, verse 14, however, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her, and he lay with her. This is one messed up family. Before we go any further, we've got a son who feels it's okay to rape his half-sister. What is going on here? What is going on here? I think David has already got, he either has or has failed to plant ideals and character into some of his kids if this stuff is going on. And um, he has taken it to a, an absolute low of low. And, and something is really, really missing here. I, I've studied this story over and over and over in these chapters, and you maybe have many times too. And here's what I can never find. I don't see any evidence that David ever sat down with his kids and said, hey, this is about sex. Hey, this is about right or wrong. I just don't see it. I don't see any place where he sat down and openly confessed to his children and said, you know what? I love you, and this is our family, and I, I've, 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 sometimes I make mistakes, and um, I'm sorry for that, and, but here's what I've learned, and I want you to learn from my mistakes. I don't want you, children. I love you. I don't want you to do this. I don't see any examples of that anywhere in here. Now, here's a scary statistic for you. Less than 5% of Christian couples ever give honest and thorough explanation to their children about sexuality. Less than 5%. No guidance at home. 
Less than 5%. And it's like we seem somehow willing to abdicate our responsibility as parents to, uh, to allow our children to learn about physical sex, physical love, from the schoolyard or the internet or from the classes that the school gives. Here's the thing. Our children don't just need to be educated. They need to be parented. They have to be taught how to feel about this, what to believe about this, and why. And um, so it's, it requires a very thorough and open discussion for parents to have. Now, um, for the next three minutes, our service here is going to go into the R scale. I'll keep this godly, but I want you to know I'm going to be very specific. And this is the time that if any parents feel like they don't want their children <laughs> to hear this, say, go to the restroom. <laughs> but it'll be okay. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's simple enough to teach your children biology. Okay, it can be daunting, and it, it is daunting. Um, but that's the easiest part, I think. And I think it's important for children to understand that part. But it's more important for children to lovingly and truthfully understand that the, the spiritual and emotional implications of the physical act. The spiritual and emotional implications of the physical act. If we fail to teach more than just biology, what should be seen as the most beautiful and intimate um, and, and, and private communication between a husband and wife can become this odd curiosity. Um, when, uh, and by the way, talking about sex with your children isn't, an, isn't a sit-down. It's a series of discussions over a period of time that's relevant to that child and their maturing growth and their own curiosity. For example, you don't... I mean, uh, it might be common for a five-year-old or a four-year-old to look at mommy's pregnant tummy and wonder how the baby's going to get out. But most five-year-olds don't want to know how it got in there. And you don't have to go into that at the same time. Do you follow me? I mean, um, it's like... Um, if, 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 if the spiritual and physical portions of this aren't discussed, it becomes an odd thing. Like, I remember with one of my children, who grew up to be an engineer, who's always analyzing things and calculating things and trying to figure out things. I remember when, when Lisa and I sat and talked with our son, Ben, who wears bow ties. <laughs> So, um, and as we explained to Ben, he was just a little guy. It was the time the, the subject was coming up on the playground. And we needed to have discussion, and so we explained to him what happened. He sat after we explained. Here's here's how life happens. He sat quietly for a moment, and his first question was, "That means you did it three times." <laughs> okay, that's the thinking of an. He was already telling us at that point he was going to be an engineer, calculating, figuring things out. But that's not where you want to end with your child. You have to take them past that point. And um, before any child gets to the station in life where they have to personally face a decision about participating in physical, physical relationships, here are some things they have to know. Okay? Notice I did not give you an age. I wanted to give you a guideline and say before they are ever faced alone to making these decisions, here are three things I think they need to know. One, God designed sexual intimacy to produce significant amounts of physical and emotional pleasure. And if you need some scriptural basis for that, the Song of Solomon will take you there. I'm not going to go down that road today. I'm just going just to take the fact that you will accept the first um, assertion I'm going to give you. It's, it's, it's very pleasurable. In fact, it is so pleasurable engineered by God to be that way. It creates a tremendous pull, a tremendous gravity all on its own. It's worth asking yourself the question or studying and finding out why would God cause that? Well, the answer is being the selfish person that is down inside of me and is probably inside of every one of you and inside of most men. There are some things that we would never do if it wasn't for our desires being reined in. And um, some things. But anyway, so God decided. It was God's decision to make it pleasurable. That is both good and bad. Because that pleasure brings great risk. There is a pull and an attraction and an assault on the innocence of people from a very young age. So children need to understand. You're going to have these feelings. You're going to have this desire. And others are going to want you to get involved. And it's, it's God's design for it to be pleasurable. And that's why you're going to feel a lot of pressure. Number two. Sexual intimacy always creates 
a spiritual and a relational bond. It does. And be joined. Genesis 2.24, that word in there that the Lord put, um, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. Debak means, it means to cling to. It literally can be translated glued. Glued. The idea that someone can have a one night stand and it means nothing, is just not true. If it was true, every husband and every wife here would not give a rip if their spouse was unfaithful. That means nothing. But the truth is it means a whole bunch. And the reason it means a whole bunch is because God designed it to create a bonding that doesn't happen in any other way. And here's the thing about that bond. He designed, God designed for that bond to be permanent. He made it really hard for it to come apart. And so that sexual bond that, that God designed um, is designed there to help a marriage succeed. You know, it's a very, very powerful force in a marriage to help overcome problems. And when that bond is created outside of marriage, it brings problems with breaking that bond into the future relationships. And that's a whole different topic. In fact, that would be a weekend retreat topic, but we don't have time for that today. But your children need to understand those truths because that's what's at stake when they make a decision to have casual sex. You know, my, my generation grew up with some understandings. This generation is growing up with phrases that we would never have considered, things like friends with benefits. If you've never heard that phrase before, a friend with benefit, this is now an old phrase. It's not even a new phrase. A friends with benefit are two people who are not intending for having any relationship. They're not boyfriend or girlfriend, but they just decide that, that for the fun of it, they're going to have sex together. Friends with benefits. And there, is, there are consequences. The ordinance of, of marriage is holy to God. It's, it's, it's a type. It's an example of the relationship between Christ and his bride. And that's why it's so holy. God's intention was to develop a faithful, one flesh bonding relationship with his bride, the church. He wants us to faithfully love him. He's faithful to us. And the marriage is the earthly example of what that perfect relationship will one day be like. And here's the thing. This part of sex education will never be taught on the playground. It is never going to make the curriculum at the school. They may do a terrific job there, or they may not. I don't know. But this portion of the curriculum, it will ne- this will never make the curriculum. It just won't in our culture. And here's the thing. I think our children need to be taught accurate medical information. They really need to be, be given spiritual guidance, and they, they, they need to be taught refusal skills. Those are things that you should be doing when you talk to your kids about the birds and the bees at the appropriate station at the appropriate time. That's the way to prepare them and to love them and to help them as they face that kind of pressure. And parents, parents are the ones responsible to give that spiritual guidance and that, those refusal skills. And, and that's the day that we live in because this is our culture. But you're their parents. Anyway, kids are smart. Okay, relax now. We're done with the R. Kids are smart. They're intuitive. And, um, you know, this, this whole thing fits neatly into the train them up that we talked about before. You know, they, the kids know a lot more than we maybe give them credit for. And they're going to emulate what they see and what they hear. So I'm thinking, looking at this story so far, I'm thinking, hey, David, if you were a good father, here would be some really high priorities to you right now. Probably, probably in this order, but I could change my mind if you get mad at me. Okay? So... Probably in this order. Okay, so the first thing I would be thinking of if I was a good father is I have got to get to my daughter Tamar and help her walk through this and heal her wounds and restore her. And I, Number one. Number two, Amnon. <laughs> what, <laughs> what is with you that would make you think this is acceptable behavior? Treat any, any human being this way. Your sister. Any human being. And then the third thing I'd be thinking about as a father is what all my other children were watching. Because all of the rest of my kids are now watching, okay, this is how you raise a family. Here's what you do when someone is hurt. Here's what you do when someone is broken. And those are the things that I'm thinking David should be doing. Let's see if he's doing those things. (laughs) Okay, verse 21. But when David heard all of these things, he was very angry. Period. That's it. Now I'm getting mad at him. <laughs> he, he, he got mad. 
It's his MO. It's how he functions. He has the exact, very same exact reaction. There's another story. You can find it where the prophet Nathan comes up and tells him a story and confronts him. And, and it says, it's, the scripture says, it says his, his anger was greatly aroused. He's angry. He doesn't, it doesn't say anywhere that he calls Amnon in and says, what were you thinking? What did you do? You know, there's no parental intervention here. There's, there's no resolution, no restitution. He doesn't do any of those things. He's just a dad who's really mad. <laughs> and that's the end of it. Picture this. You're driving down I-5, and there's a state patrolman on the side, and he's got his radar gun, and he's parked. And you go by going really fast. No, let's just change this. I go by going really fast. He's looking through that thing, and it's flashing something with, let's say, three digits. Let's just really pour it on here, which would never happen. And, 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 and instead, he stays parked. And here's what he does. Terry, you make me so angry. Great. Green light. I can speed all I want. This is the equivalent of David's reaction. He was very angry. What's happening is David here, by his passivity, by his missing role as a father, he is shaping another one of his sons, Absalom. He's shaping a bunch of them. And now Absalom gets angry too. And, and, he's get, he's, he, and, and, and because of David's failure to shape his son Absalom, Absalom is turning into a really bad man, a man of bad character. Now, I'm not even talking here about Amnon. Okay, that's a whole different discussion. Don't view my failure to get hard on Amnon here as, as if somehow I'm, I'm not. I'm just not going to spend time on that today. But what's happening here is, is David is just, just not doing his thing. Now, when we consider culturally, um, statistically, the rise in um, um, juvenile crime in our culture in the United States, there are a lot of people that have studied that, and there's a lot of census information. So there's a guy named Dr. Lauren Motion, uh, National Institute of Mental Health. And here's, after analyzing statistics, these are statistics from the census, He's, he's, here's his statement. The absence of a father is, stronger, is a stronger factor than poverty in contributing to juvenile delinquency. Here's why that's important. Lots of reasons it's important, but here's one of them. The next time an election season rolls around, which is pretty much all the time now, (laughs) and you hear about all these problems in our culture and what we got to do, when you hear that the biggest cause of crime in our culture is poverty, that's not accurate. When you hear things about race and all these, that's not accurate. These studies show that absent parenting is a bigger cause than those other factors. I heard, one, I heard it put like this. The cure for crime isn't in the electric chair. It's in the high chair. You know, it begins when they're very young. It begins before they even know how to talk. You start shaping their heart. It's the role of a parent. It's not to make your life better. It's to make their life better. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. But you can be a good parent. You can be a really good parent. And if you want to be a good parent, there's one thing you can never be, and that's a passive parent. You cannot be an aloof parent. You can be a non-engaged parent. You you, you can't be an uninvolved parent. Somebody else was watching this whole thing unfold too, and um, it was another one of King David's sons, a guy named Solomon. Now, this was Solomon's family too. And Solomon, who will later go on to become king and write the book of Proverbs, along with some other books, you know. Now, if you know the book of Proverbs, it is full of one-liners that are wisdom about raising children. It's full of them. And probably the most famous one is the one I quoted earlier today. You know, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart. One of David's other kids, watching this unfold, watching how not to raise a family, wrote that passage, wrote, wrote that, that scripture under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean, train up a child? Well, it for sure does not mean be passive. It, it for sure doesn't. It, it, you, there's something about being active and involved. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean, train up does not mean that you tell them to make their bed and give them advice, a, a one-liner, once every two or three months. We talked about that during the... Um, during the baby dedication today, but for the purposes of the recording, I'm going to give it to you again. Because there may be... I, I just, the, the word there, kanak, 
is, is only used five times in, in the Old Testament, and one time it's this one, train up a child, and the other five times is dedicate. And it's, it's, a, it's a word that's still used in Arabic culture today, and that word is, it's a process where you take, um, you take date and honey and mix it together, and you put it on the lips or the palate of a baby, and it stimulates the sucking action. And the point there is to stimulate a love in the child for the things of God, for, for godliness. So, don't answer out loud. Do you play with your child? Do you pray with your child? Are you actively involved with your child enough to stimulate their desire for godliness? That's, you know, if your little boy grows up to say, I want to be just like daddy, is that a good thing? If you're, if, if, I just want to be just like mommy. Is that a good thing? Your little girl says that. And that's what the idea of training is. And in that training, it's a dedicating also. It's a turning them to God. So anyway, Absalom responds. He's watching all this, and he is going to respond to dad's indifference. His father does nothing, and and Absalom wants some justice. Verse 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine... In other words, when his defenses are down. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous. So he's now saying, hey, it's, you know, I'm now the arbiter of justice. This will be fine because I say so. So, you know, my dad didn't do this. So you guys be courageous. And you do my dirty work for me. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff wrong with what's going on here. Verse 29. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each of them got on his mule and fled. Okay. When you're in the scripture and you see something that makes no sense, that's always worth studying. I'm not going to do it now. and I'm not going to go down a rabbit trail. But if you were afraid for your life, would you go run and jump on a mule? A mule? Okay. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Um, anyway, so this is Absalom's response to David's passivity. And, and, and mules, they can run pretty fast, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so, so where's David? Where, where, where's dad in all this? What's he do? Let's see how he reacts. Verse 36. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very, very bitterly. Okay, that's understandable. One of his sons is now dead murdered by another one, verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And David longed to go to Absalom for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So far, David has gotten mad and David cries. But he never went to see and confront his son Amnon. Never did that. And he never saw Absalom again after he murdered his brother. Never saw him again. And notice what the verse says. David longed to see Absalom. So my obvious question is, why didn't he? Why didn't he go see him? He's, he's, he, he could have. He longs to, but he never did. Why? He's the king. He's got a backstage pass. He can go anywhere he wants. What's, you know, why did he go see his son? I really don't know the answer to that. I really don't. And we can speculate, but, but we don't know why. And today, we can ask that exact same question in a lot of families. You know, why doesn't that guy humble himself? Why, why, why doesn't she decide to reconcile with her? What, why doesn't that stubborn young man just go back home and make things right with mom and dad? You know, and, and to talk this thing through. Why, why don't they do that? And what's happening is in, in, in all of these complications of feelings and expectations and hurts all bake together and they create this, this family dynamic that's unique to that particular family. They may be similar to others, but there's stuff going. And we all get entrenched. We get entrenched and we have our own little way of dealing with things and... We refuse to do whatever it takes. And here is a classic family who just stayed stuck. And it 
really becomes easy to see if you just keep reading and follow along about the story of David, you know, and the cycles. There's these cycles of violence and resentment, and then anger goes to, you mean this, the anger grows and stays, and, you know, why? Why all that? I believe it starts with a passive dad, an absent dad. Now, when I use the phrase absent, I know that that's, I want to be very careful here. I'm not assaulting anyone's lifestyle or your circumstances. I know that absent can mean a lot of things. It can mean um, absent because of a divorce or because of, um, you know, it can be abandonment or, or it can be neglect on other reasons, but it can be outside the capability Here's a comment from a guy named Chuck Colson, who was um, from Prison Fellowship International. He said, take away the family, and you might as well build prison cells right now. When you take away the family, this incredible insecurity starts to grow. Dr. James Dobson, who I, I, has been pretty influential for me over the years. I've listened to him a lot. He's a psychologist. He was a former professor of pediatrics at USC School of Medicine. You probably heard of him. Here's his comment. He says, The Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. It's my opinion that our very survival as a people will depend on the presence or absence of masculine leadership in the home. Over the last 40 years, there's been a pretty significant measurable rise in violent crime among the young that is in direct lockstep with and in correspondence with um, a rise in families with abandoned parents, abandoned fathers. Lots of stats on that. Today, 23, about 24% of U.S. children live in fatherless families, 17.4 million of them. Teenage aggression and hostility pretty much mirrors the growth of single-parent families. When you see the growth of single-parent families and you measure teenage hostility, they track together. Children from, from fatherless families are three times as likely to end up in jail by the age of 30 as those that are in, in, intact or, or mother and father families. And this isn't theory. This is reality. This is, this is our culture. So back to Absalom. Not only does this guy get violent and um, kill his, his brother, but in cha- uh, chapter 15, he starts tunneling underneath his father. And um, he takes 50 guys with him, and he goes and he hangs out at the city gates, which is kind of like Facebook, but in person, right? <laughs> okay, at the city gates, and... Um, and, and, and that's where all the people who come to the city watch what he does. By the way, this little passage is the template. It is the example for how to win in politics in modern America. See if you don't see exactly what's going on here. Okay. Then Absalom would say to him, okay, so people would be coming in, coming into the city. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Translation, the government should be doing this. There's no one doing it. Keep going. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause, anything, I can fix it all, would come to me, and I would give him justice. This guy is a perfect politician. All that's missing is kissing babies. (laughs) We're not done yet. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put his hand and take him and kiss him. There was probably babies in there. I don't know that, but I'm just guessing. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What's happening here is a lot of things, but but at a political level, this son of King David is starting a coup d'etat. He's starting a coup. The stability of the entire nation now rests on the relationship of one father and one son, and it's about to split there are at least two principal reasons, I think, for the dysfunction in um, King David's family. Number one, proximity without intimacy. Proximity without intimacy. You know, that's where you're close, but you're not really close. And so here's the deal. Absalom um, has fled the country, and he's gone for three years. And there's a guy named Joab who is one of David's close friends and confidant. He was a general. He's watching his, his, his friend David, and he's seeing this absence just kind of eating David's, it's just killing the life in his heart. And he knew that he wanted to see Absalom, but he also knew that David wouldn't go fix it for whatever reasons. So Joab goes through this process. I, he's kind of like he hires his actress to go in and create this scene. And he, through this process, convinces David 
to call for Absalom to go ahead and come back home. Verse 23. So Joab rose. David agrees. Joab, Joab, Joab rose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Verse 28. And Absalom dwelt for two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. There's proximity without intimacy. And it's really hard, probably almost impossible, to heal unless you can talk to the person and see their eyes and look into their, and see their body language and, and work it out. Don't let them see my face. So watch what happens. That makes Absalom angrier. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to see him. And he sent a second time, but he still wouldn't come. <laughs> Verse 30, so he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is near mine and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? I'll bet it sounded like that. Why have your servants set my field? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. I'd rather die than go on like this. I gotta see my dad. And just as Absalom longed to see David, David longs to see his son. But David says, I don't want to deal with this. You can bring him to town, but keep him away from me. I don't want to see him. That's how David dealt with things. Proximity without intimacy. Two years of that makes for two years of growing resentment. In the 1800s, there was a guy named um, Charles Francis Adam. His father was John Quincy Adam, the president. His grandfather was um, John Adams. Okay, so this guy, kind of American political aristocracy. Anyway, very big wig, important guy. He kept a journal. And one day in his journal was this entry. It said, went fishing with my son today. A day wasted. He had an eight-year-old son, Henry Brooks Adams, who also kept a journal. And historians have now compared the two journals for that day. Henry wrote in his journal that day, went fishing with my dad today, the most wonderful day of my life. Proximity without intimacy. Dads, it is so much easier to build a boy into a man than to repair a broken man. How do you, how do you build a man of character? How do you build a, a young woman of character? You sow into their life, your life. You... You know, you share your intimacy that, that comes from the proximity. You just, you build life. This, uh, Gallup did a survey with young people, a thousand teenagers, asking them about their relationships. 42% of them had not received any words of praise during the 24-hour period that was being tested. 50%, no hugs, no kisses. 40, 44% had never heard the words, I love you from their parents. Well, you know, I told them once. If they forgot, I'll tell them again. I'll remind them. No, you, it, it, you, our children need to hear this regularly. As selfish as I am, because I'm standing here, I can say it right now. I, I love my children. Got five of them, and I love you all. It's okay if you want to turn to your child right now and say, I love you. Sorry to put the pressure on you. Not really sorry to put the pressure on you. Anyway, tell them. So this causes this, this, this proximity. It's causing this dysfunction. A second reason, dissension without resolution. You can't avoid disagreements in a family, but you have, to, you have to resolve it before it becomes unresolvable. So there's been this growing, lengthy rift between David and Absalom, and it's never been resolved. So, so Absalom, Absalom you know, kills. He sets things on fire. And now he's starting a coup. So what happens? If you, you, know, you can read the next several chapters, 15, 16, 17, and 18, and, 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 and they'll show this story. But here's basically what happens. He, he's successful in his subversion. He, he manages to split the nation. He inaugurates himself as king. And um, he, he's recruited a whole bunch of people to follow him and resist the king, King David. And um, he manages to kick King David out of Jerusalem, and David has to flee. 
Now there are two armies, the army of King David and the army of King Absalom, the army of a father and the armor of, of a son, and they're facing off. Father versus son, two, two armies, and now we have a family fight on steroids. And all of these innocent soldiers are going to now die. Because father and son, I mean, this is just getting worse every minute. I'm getting madder at David as we go here. Aren't you getting mad? Okay, so you're, you're more mature than me. Okay, so they're about to go into battle, and here comes David's briefing. 2 Samuel 18, 5. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. So these are three generals saying this. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. He won't talk to him. He, he won't resolve conflict. Deal gently with him. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. I don't know about you, but what it looks to me like is that David, all he can think about is his son. You know, not, how's the battle going? Not, I hope I get my throne back. He's thinking about his son. Now, I've prayed about this moment, and I just want to say to you, sons and daughters in this room, maybe you are strained or um, estranged from a mother or a father, and you might be thinking, my dad doesn't care about me, my mother doesn't care about me. I want you to know they are thinking about you. They are thinking about you. Well, why doesn't he ever call me? That's a great point. I, I don't have the answer to that. David did not go to Absalom. He had years of opportunities. And in your family, I, I don't know what went sideways. I, I can't speak to what went sideways that made somebody in your family kind of dig in their heels. But I ask this of you, church. If you're a mom or a dad and there's a rift in your family, when you leave this place today, you go do what you can do to restore that rift. You know, do your part. Reach out and heal the rift. Or if you're a son or a daughter and, and um, you've been hurt by your parents, don't just sit there and wait for them to come to you. You go to them. Remember that scripture that says, you know, honor your mother and father before his... I mean, it's still in the word of God. It's still there and God will honor. Go do what you can. After all, I mean... Aren't the ones who have received unconditional love the best equipped to give unconditional love, right, followers? I mean, so, I mean, we, we just, followers, we, we live to a different standard. You go and make the best you can to make it right. may not make it right, but you'll please your heavenly Father. So we close with, okay, verse 33. Then the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's too little and it's too late for David. He's got this grief. There, there are, these are the very words he should have said to him before when he had the opportunity. For two years while Absalom was in Jerusalem, for three years when he was in Geshur, he longed to see him, Scripture says, but he, but he can't go now. It, it, his, Absalom is dead, it's over. And I have seen this played out too many times with my eyes. I, I've seen this in emergency rooms at hospitals. I've seen it in funeral chapels. I've seen it in living rooms. You know, for me, this is not a Bible verse or a statistic. I just watch this happen. I've, I've watched fathers who were really aloof and, and proud, and I've, I've watched sons who would get into this with their dad, and they just wouldn't fix it. And, I mean, neither of them would budge. I mean, I watched family members get into a fist fight at their mother's funeral. David's family is crippled for the rest of their life because everything in their family now is going to come through this filter. This is who we are. And, you know, Absalom, Absalom, oh, Absalom. Now, I know you're thinking, thanks for inviting us to church. This was really encouraging. <laughs> You know, I, I know you didn't come today for me to get you depressed. I, okay, so here's this. We're in a series here about security in the family. We're in, the security, we're in a series about security. We've been talking about eternal security. We're talking now about security in the family. And today was really setting up the framework of where I want to go over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about um, 
how you can build a secure family, not just what went wrong with David. But here's this great principle, and I just want to remind you of this scripture, Isaiah 59, 19. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit, the ruach of the Lord will raise up a standard. That word, that word spirit, ruach, it's translated in other places as wind. It's, this, it's, it's, it's representative of the Holy Spirit. It's representative of the power of God. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the power of God will defend you. And the Lord does it. It's supernatural. There are ways to secure your family, for your, to secure your, fam, your, your relationships and your next generations. Here's three quick ones, and we're going to pray. One, communicate. Learn to communicate as a family. Because how you communicate as parents is setting up a template for how your children will communicate with their children. You know, they're, they're going to mostly copy what you do. Two, humble yourselves. Learn to, to talk with them and learn to begin your sentences with, I'm, I'm sorry about, and you fill it in. It's not always, hey, I need to talk to you about these three things that are, okay, there's a time for all of that, but there needs to also be, I'm sorry, forgive me, because if you try that, you're building into them the ability to be humble when they need to be in their own future. And this next one is going to require some outside-the-box thinking. Okay, this is something you need to hear from God, not from me. But I just want to crack the door open. You know, we've been talking about, remember all those kids that are homeless and, um, you know, on the street? For some of us, the role is mentorship. You know, big brother, big sister kind of stuff, or maybe even the topic of adoption. You know, if these children who are homeless could be brought into Christian homes... You know, some of them just maybe once a week or for a, an hour um, with a mentor, a big brother or a big sister. You know what the stats prove there? They, they, the stats turn upside, right side up when there is a mentor in their lives. When young people who are having trouble, you know, when there's a big brother or a big sister, it tells us the crime rate goes down, absenteeism goes down. You know, it's, you know just, just from interacting with a big brother or a big sister, There are no perfect parents. There are no perfect families. There are no perfect homes. But you can and you should have a secure home. Our children, when they're born, do not come already equipped with the skills they need to live life like you are learning and have learned up until now. So the choice is ours not to be perfect parents, flawless, not that at all. In fact, sometimes our role is to not fix their problems. That's a skill set learning when to not fix your children's problems somehow in love. But our role is to communicate, to be humble, and to shape them for their future. Next week, we're going to talk, next couple of weeks, we'll talk more about how to build secure families. Let's pray. Lord, um, I I just want to ask right straight up for security in our homes. We're speaking about all these things that have gone wrong and what's going wrong in our culture. Lord, we pray for our families and our households, and we ask for you to help us as parents to, to guide our families into security. And we're, we're talking to the one who unconditionally loves us. You love us, Lord. And there are no strings attached to that love. It's unfailing. It's unmerited. Thank you, God. It's unconditional. Thank you that it's unmerited, that I can't claim that I deserve to be loved by you. I don't. That's what makes your love so special. And Lord, because we've been forgiven, because we've been loved by you, I pray that we would use that foundation, Lord, to treat other people the same. And Lord, especially these precious gifts that are in our homes, I pray for intimacy with our kids, this satisfying relationship between parents and children, between moms and dads. I pray, Lord, for home, for for like a, a security system in our home that's based on love and good communications. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Church, you can keep your eyes.